I'm Kendra Winchester here with Autumn Privet, and this is Reading Women, a podcast inviting you to reclaim half the bookshelf by discussing books written by or about women. And today we're talking to Kalisha Buchanan about her novel, Speaking of Summer, which is out now from CounterPoint. You can find a complete transcript of this episode, as well as a list of all the books we mentioned today by following the links in our show notes. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. I believe we first started talking about this novel when this gorgeous cover came on the scene from Counterpoint, and they always do a great job with their covers. Uh, Counterpoint always does such a good job. And then, of course, I had to read a book with a character named Autumn because you don't often come across that. But it's a book that covers so many important topics, including mental health and self-care and black women and self-care and gentrification and family. And just so there's just so much packed into the story and it has the twistiest twist of an ending. Um, So we're super excited to talk to Kalisha about it. Kalisha Buchanan is a writer and speaker, and this is her fourth novel. Her three previous novels are Solemn, Conception, and Upstate. And already, speaking of summer, is a 2019 book pick for Essence, O Magazine, Time, USA Today, and Entertainment Weekly. And her stories and essays have appeared in so many different magazines, including the Oxford American a Winter Tangerine Review, Michigan Quarterly Review, and more. She's also a true crime expert who often appears on TV and just all around a very smart woman that we really enjoyed talking to. And so without further ado, here is our conversation with Kalisha Buchanan. So Kalisha, welcome to the podcast. We're so excited to have you on. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. We were so excited when we first heard about Speaking of Summer, the blurb that we read definitely drew us in, and so it was as good as it promised to be, and it was like a good read for summer as well, um, fittingly, and so yeah, we're excited to continue to talk about it today. Yeah, I actually um, had the, I don't know, I had the title, and I didn't know how the story would play out, (laughs) but I had to stick to it because I did like it. Uh, and so, yeah, it seems to be working out very well uh, as a great summer book for people. So that's great. And like you said, the, the title, it's so captivating. Uh, but for our listeners who haven't uh, read Speaking of Summer yet, uh, could you describe it for them? Sure. It's essentially a book about a story about a woman named Autumn <laughs> who is um, living in Harlem and Miss, the story opens with her looking for her twin sister, Summer. She's just gone missing. Summer has just gone missing. Hasn't come home. Autumn isn't sure of, of the circumstances, but what she finds out is this is not a big priority for authorities, especially not in a city like New York where there's so much more for authorities to do. And so this kind of sends her down a rabbit hole of trying to get attention to her case, but fearing for herself, the emotional problems that come when a loved one just isn't showing up and out of contact and her life starts to spiral out of control. And she does meet some allies who are there for her, kind of hold her, backbone her through the ordeal. And over the course of this year, uh, going from a winter to a fall, she you know, definitely finds out what happened 
to Summer. And, you know, she also kind of finds out a lot about what happened to her and her life and just things that were kind of lurking in in her life to deal with. And you just mentioned a minute ago that the title came first. So it was the title, the inspiration for the story, or was there another inspiration for the story? It was summertime when I thought of the novel. Well, I didn't know what it was going to be at that time. And it just all really flowed together that I was at home back in Illinois, uh, which is kind of small town America, and sitting outside where, you know, we have a porch and it's quiet and dogs barking and that kind of stuff, that that kind of different milieu from the, the city. And I just had calmed down from doing a class reunion. And I just had imagined a, a young girl out in the yard. And it wasn't really me because we, the, my family hadn't, we didn't move into that house until I was past the age in which I just kind of saw this carefree child. And it was summertime. And so I just was like, oh, her name is Summer. Then I was like, oh, what if she has a sister named Autumn? So yeah, it just, just, that title came to me. But the story itself kind of merged from a few other things that I was working on at the time, one of which became a short story about a couple who's a victim of violence in Harlem. And the incident of Sandra Bland was also happening at this time that I had first imagined the young character. It was just this kind of real distress, you know, because we see, you know, we're seeing all these videos all the time and constantly confronted with these matters. But for some reason, the Sandra Bland uh, encounter and... Uh, tape just just kind of was different for me. Number one, it was a woman. So that kind of fed into this just really anger because you need a lot of fuel to finish a book, <laughs> to actually sit there. And, and I think a lot of times anger is more fuel than contentment. And so that was was behind it as well. Now that you've mentioned it, I can definitely see more clearly those themes in your book. And I think that they're so important and we're going to talk about them a little bit more later. But before we kind of get into the the heart of what Speaking of Summer is about, this is actually your fourth book. So could you tell us a little bit about your writing process and like, has it changed over time or was there anything about writing this book in particular that surprised you perhaps compared to the other books that you've written? Yeah, I mean, I've adapted pretty much all of my books and projects and including things I'm working on now to my life at the moment. I think you have to have a lot of flexibility to pursue a creative profession and actually get the work done and not fall into a category, a regretful category of, you know, what Maya Angelou has said is nothing sadder than having an untold story inside of you. To not fall into that category, just you have to continually adapt the creative process to the life conditions of the time. And so my first two books, I was a student and it all just just flowed beautifully together. And I had always pretty much spent my 20s in school. And so reading books, even if it's not fiction, and writing work, even if it's not fiction, really, for me, activates 
the same motors as writing fiction and reading novels for pleasure. And so it was pretty easy, a good synergy. And then I had a a long break where uh, what I know in retrospect is I didn't know how to be a writer when pulled out of that wheel. I didn't know how to get the wheel going for myself. And if it did start to spin, I didn't know how to keep it spinning because I was no longer in environments where the goal of your life is to read material, write about material or things you imagine uh, and think of. And so what I have realized in order to keep going is that I just have to put myself in school (laughs) and really kind of always have an urgency that I've had as a, a student in the past. And I don't know if that will work for everyone, but if you recall, I'm sure from your college days, high school days, um, and all of that, you, you finished your work when you had the time. If you were working after school and a test was the next day, well, you went home and studied. If, you know, you were in college and participating in all the various activities we think of to kind of define ourselves, and you woke up early in the morning, you pulled all-nighters. And so that's really what it's about for me now, is it's kind of my own university that I stay in. And yeah, to just constantly fit the work in. But I definitely would say the most important when you are kind of independently working, at least for me, and I've heard many, many writers say this, I believe it's kind of become this romanticized myth of these stormy writers, alcoholic writers, drug-using writers saying, you know, that, I believe that was cute for a time. Most writers I know, including myself and just ones I learned from, you really kind of have to have a very healthy lifestyle, I believe, in order to have that proper mind-body synergy. So, you know, what I'm eating is very important. Exercise is, is extraordinarily important because this is a sedentary job. And all of that, when all that stuff kind of tumbles, then the writing for me tumbles. And so I, I would say probably before the writing, I put taking care of myself, which as the book says for a woman is, is just something we have to fight for, unfortunately. Right. But I think for anyone who wants to live a creative life that's not dictated by you have to be at your desk, you have to be with your boss, you have to have these times blacked out, I would highly recommend starting with just a very strong regimen of, of health that makes you feel good before you even sit down to write to kind of get that discipline down pat first. Yeah, Autumn and I both work from home. And so I don't want to speak for Autumn on this part, but uh, when I was reading um, Autumn, who is the protagonist of the novel, reading uh, <laughs> that Autumn uh, was doing her life and she had worked freelance and all of these different things, I deeply related to like the handholding of your clients that you talked about, like, uh, <laughs> and I was just like, yes, I get this. <laughs> it's tough. It's tough. I mean, especially now where we are in a place, you know, the the my 
parents and grandparents' generation of, of work is not the not necessarily, I mean, that was the standard, but we are in a, a place now where so many people, even when they work for companies, they are telecommuting or working remotely, and it is tough to communicate the message that you're working. I, you know, people will respect, hey, you know, boot camp starts in five minutes or 10 minutes. I, I got to get around the corner to the gym. But to get people to, you know, really respect that I'm in here in this room of my own doing the things that make me happy and help me to survive in life. It's, I don't, we're not there yet. I'm pro men. I'm pro women. I'm not in any way, equality works across the board. However, I will say it's so much easier for men in my experiences and my views to have that respected. I mean, this image of the doctor working from home or the, you know, husband with his home office, I believe that was a in the Brady Bunch. You know, we never saw the office and Carol and, and or the maid, she was there all the time, and then the husband would come in from his office. And so I think for women, we're, we're still really uh, having to kind of uh, communicate the boundaries of, of working for, from home, and definitely a lot of that for me as a writer, because at the time I wrote this book, I, once again, we're talking my normal kind of structure had been stripped away. And that was one of the challenges of finding my way back to writing my fiction and doing other projects was how do I work from home? <laughs> uh, I've been everything from, at a, it, it reached a point at every uh, apartment that I had or home that I had. I literally became the super or the butler of the home. I, I got the packages. I greeted the utility people. I worked with the landlord on all the repairs. And I'm, I'm looking around like there are other people in this building here who need to get in on this. And so, yeah, I mean... You know, and as we see in the novels, uh, Autumn, that, you know, she doesn't have that backbone yet. And, you know, we see the consequences. And those are definitely ones that I've lived through. But I'm also not a, really a fan of writer's retreat. I, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, I've always produced at home. So that's one consistency throughout all my, my books is I've always written them at home. I didn't have, I didn't want to go away and be alone and blah, blah, blah. So, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, a challenge. (laughs) So one of the things that really struck me when I was reading Speaking of Summer was how, you know, the opening of the book, like you mentioned, is Autumn's twin sister, Summer, is missing. And one of our contributors didn't know that we were going to be talking to you. And so she reviewed Speaking of Summer this past week in the newsletter. And she... Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah, Joss did a great job. And she was talking about the book and its themes. And she said one of the major themes is the authorities' bias against missing Black women, how it just happens to Black women and it's not covered. And there's this assumption around it. And we can see that Autumn is trying to talk to this uh, police officer who's been assigned Summer's case and trying to, you know, get him to look for her sister. And she's very frustrated and she feels unseen. Was that something that you definitely wanted to tackle in this book about, you know, missing Black women and our need to look for them and the stereotypes around that as well, in addition to the complex issues, to avoid spoilers, that I'll say that you tackle in the second half of the book? Yeah, I mean, it it didn't start that way. Initially, it it did start with kind of my concern 
about the violence and disrespect and powerlessness in other ways, but as the plot continued to unfold, I definitely was enlightened myself, and I love that. Like, I love when I realize something when I'm working that I didn't realize before. And, you, you know, I knew this, of course. We we hear of this. Um, I've read articles. I know about, quote-unquote, marginalized communities that aren't really marginalized. They're just as present as everyone else, but they're not as seen. It certainly did take over a huge chunk of the thought process behind the work. Even for instance, I probably know every forensic files episode and all of the true crime, cold case files, those kind of things very rarely feature black women cases based on their deaths, murders, and the disappearances. Some of our, you know, classic favorites, you know, Law and Order, shows like that once again. And it's a mirror of the society uh, where once in a blue moon, I, I would see cases that pretty much centered on black businessmen, males, um, who had been murdered in their communities. But uh, very rarely just average black young women going to college or prostitutes. I, I saw you know a lot of cases about prostitutes and women who were strippers or had fallen to drugs. And even those cases um, weren't representing the spectrum. Definitely as the plot unfolded, I wanted that to kind of come out more. And the other character who is helping her, he agrees with her, but doesn't know what to do about it. (laughs) Uh, And... So, yeah, I mean, it, it definitely, even though it didn't start off that way, it's become a great message that I'm really happy is coming out about the book, from the book, is speaking about the number of black women who are missing. To the point that I even, in uh, later writings of it, went back and kind of heightened that once I realized that that was a part of it. So, for instance, when she's obsessed with the Black and Missing website, which is working very hard to correct this, those kind of touches, I definitely went went in and and added. That was one of the things that Kendra and I both noticed when we were reading the book. And then I saw when I was doing some background reading about, you say on your website that you're a true crime expert. And we were like, oh, then she's a kindred spirit. But that's something that Kendra and I have talked about a lot in the last year. We read an essay collection by Alice Bolin about, and it's called Dead Girls. And she kind of examines this trope of like dead girls in the media and how it's kind of just a a white male fetish and it's kind of like opened our eyes to kind of like all of these true crime shows that we liked and watched you know growing up but it made me want to ask you seeing as how you know you're, you're an expert on this topic what do you think is the thing that people most misunderstand or choose to overlook in the whole dead and missing girl genre that we have in in the America apart from the things that we've kind of already been talking about 
that these are, you know, real people in lives. I'm a member of um, Sisters in Crime, and they send us links every month. There's a great article, a very long article about, I guess there's something, I, I'd heard of this, but it's True Crime Con, so it's similar to Comic Con and blah, 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 where it's an actual best like an expo on actual real true crimes and it's a double-edged sword because on the one hand it's a place for survivors um to come and bring new attention to their cases because they have all these fans of this kind of material there so they can get media they can get podcasts they can get bloggers they can get all these exposures to keep these cases alive but there's an element of pop culture about it that is all, you know, borders, toes a line between, you know, selling T-shirts and things that glorify serial killers and all of that. And so I believe when these cases may be old or distant, which is, I also kind of wanted to update the book. I definitely wanted it to be set in these times. I believe when the cases are old or you feel like, you know, people have been gone for a while, it's easy to forget, you know, that these are, you know, these were, these people lived in the world and, and had lives and people who cared about them and people who loved them. And the Kitty Genovese case is a, prime example is a beautiful documentary about her called The Witness where they interviewed her brother in particular I can't remember how long ago that was like 50 years now um, the, this is the case where uh, the, apparently people in Queens heard about 20 people heard this woman screaming when she was being murdered and nobody called the police which was a myth people did call but this case gave rise to 911 as mm-hmm. we know it today because it wasn't the same system. And so, um, you know, this family 50 years later is trying to clear up that, you know, their sister was a real person. And, you know, this case that gave, gave rise by under theory and kind of became this cult has done some good, but you know, there there was real families, there were real victims. And, you know, Autumn kind of shows the effects of that and her life falling apart and um, her health kind of going in decline, not in a, a, a way that she winds up with permanent damage, but, you know, definitely some short-term harm, you know, just life put on pause and hold. And so... Yeah, I think I think more sensitivity, which is which is kind of what I tried to bring to any true crime cases that that I discussed, which I don't do as much anymore because I, I did have a turning point where I, I think a case involved young black children being murdered in Baltimore. And it just really hit home. It, it was just brought so close. Like, wait a minute. These are young children. And so, um, yeah, I think that any work or any, the interest in true crime and these dead girls, it it can be concerning when it's not accompanied by some victim advocacy. Yeah. So that's, I think that's the missing piece, you know, that, that, you know, it, it might be hitting on these male, you know, I don't know, these hunter gatherer instincts or whatever, but, you know, there should be some kind of victim work as well. And we'll be back with more of our conversation with Kalisha Buchanan after a word from our sponsor. The sponsor of this episode of Reading Women is The Newsworthy. 
The Newsworthy is a great daily podcast that helps you stay up to date with everything you need to know in less than 10 minutes. Unlike many news sources out there, The Newsworthy is fast, fair, and fun. Named by Salon.com as an essential current affairs podcast, The Newsworthy keeps you well-rounded and up-to-date on a wide variety of stories, from politics to tech to entertainment and everything in between, all in less than 10 minutes each weekday. In their casual and concise style, they help you save time and energy for what matters most. Plus, you always get multiple perspectives and unbiased facts, so there's more understanding and fewer eye rolls. Search for The Newsworthy wherever you listen to your podcast or go to thenewsworthy.com to check it out. Thanks so much to The Newsworthy for sponsoring this episode of Reading One and check out all of their information in our show notes. So in addition to looking at this idea of dead girls and missing women and what that looks like, you also talk a lot about mental health and chronic and mental illness was recently something that we talked a lot about on the podcast. And the reviewer that I just mentioned that reviewed your book, Joss, she is a professional in the field of mental health. And so she read this book and really appreciated the way that you depicted it. And to listeners, it may sound like I'm dancing around things. It's because I am. Um, I'm, I don't want to give any spoilers, so forgive me if I'm vague. When you were writing about mental health and what it is like to be a woman um, experiencing different mental health issues, especially being a black woman experiencing mental health issues, what is it about that that is overlooked in the media? And what is something that we can do to see more of that? Or well, you just talked about victim advocacy. What are different ways that people are being an advocate for women with different mental health issues? Um, and how can we make that more visible and understandable um, in our society, maybe through the books that we read or the media that we consume? Yeah, I mean, every, you know, people want to be entertained and, and want to escape, you know, not just through media, books, and culture, but in real life. Roxane Gay wrote a Beautiful. I said, I can't think of the name of it, but it was in the New York Times where she pretty much hit the nail on the head about what happens to women victims, particularly of sexual assault. But I think it applies to any troubles where um, she said you suddenly become inconvenient to people. You're a nuisance, you know, because they have to stop what they're doing and they, they can't escape anymore. And they've got to listen and pay attention and that's really kind of what it is. We're still at a point where people who aren't living their best life, <laughs> or at least showing they are, are inconvenient. And as you know, we just talked about social media. I think it's becoming more and more so. The more and more that is ubiquitous in society, that you have to, you know, demonstrate a life and perform a life, and it really is pushing people into some pretty dark, lonely corners. And I think listening is number one. And, you know, I can't speak for all of Western civilization. I can, I can most speak for America. I think it's a uniquely American thing. Other cultures have things like whaling uh, rooms or, or, or walls and times. It's a, it's a ceremonial thing. Grief is, you know, here we're not there yet. And so when you kind of compound this with a lot of factors that black women face where black women or black people have very strong uh, traditional families and communities, very strict. 
from my viewpoint, and this is often not shown, kind of you see the opposite. You kind of just see these like loose and patriarchal or matriarchal homes where, you know, crime and teen pregnancy. But no, I mean, traditionally black families have very strict customs. This was necessitated by discrimination that you you couldn't misbehave too much because it could mean the life of your families. But we are, are dealing with more. I mean, just, just dealing with more. I mean, it's a daily battle to kind of be treated with equal respects and seen as you are. And so that's something women experience. When you add that and the sexual assaults and and come-ons and harassment, you could argue that harassment is, is assault. I, I don't really see how we cannot really display methods and discussions and conversations about emotional and mental health and how to preserve both and strengthen both or repair them. Once again, you know, we're not there yet. I think we are doing better. Um, I've seen a lot of various, you know, websites and organizations that are using, you know, social media. There's, there's even apps and stuff out there that connect people who are struggling with things like grief, recent suicide attempts, of getting off of what drugs, they can connect immediately a volunteer through apps that just when they're feeling in a crisis or having a crisis, they reach out to someone and they will be answered and someone will be there for them. So, you know, I don't know. I, I just know that personally, you know, I see my role often is to listen and to not judge. And, I, you know, a lot of times people just want to hear that they're right. <laughs> You know, which oftentimes the victims are. People just want to hear that they're right and that someone does believe them and isn't deflecting them. And so, yeah, that's I think that's a role that I try to immediately play in situations where people are in crisis, men and women. And I think it's one that we we can probably teach. But I'm no expert. I mean, the reviewer is an expert. And that's one thing I definitely disclaimed and and clarified is I can only go by the community societal viewpoint that I have. But I think that what experts are studying is the community and society. And so, you know, I'm really kind of proud and hope I've done my work if there's a lot of convergence there. Well, I definitely think that, yeah, how you portrayed how Autumn navigates mental illness and how she's believed and not believed is definitely a very timely and important topic. And I wish we could say more, but we really don't want to give away the end of the book. Another thing that really stood out to us as we were reading and you is Autumn's kind of, like I guess you could call it a subplot, is like, you know, Autumn's kind of confronting this gentrification that's happening in her neighborhood and also the loss of her parents and now the loss of her sister. And she kind of starts to build this community or she does, you know, build this community throughout the book with like her, some of her neighbors, especially Asha, her one neighbor, as they, as she's like searching for summer and as the months go by, and that becomes, seems to become a really important relationship to her. In light of some of the things that we've been talking about, like how important is community specifically to like Autumn's health and her eventual outcome, I guess, like what ends up happening to her just on the whole, I guess. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's what I was saying, like the, you know, the listening, you know, like yeah. uh, who's listening to you, like who is, uh, yeah, like there there are just times where you know, I mean, people have no idea the power of a yeah, girl. Mm-hmm. You're right. <laughs> you know, like people have no that's that's very powerful. Even if you're even if your girl's a mess, you know, like even if you're like now you know you brought this on yourself, right? But that's not the point. You know, the point is what Asha does bring. And I, I think in a lot of ways I I definitely built her up to that because you know, I'm not suggesting that everybody sit in their apartment burning incense and, you know, wearing head wraps and doing colonics, but what she does, you know, get right is it's a safe space always, you know, there's never any point of, you know, judgment with her and constructive criticism. We all need that. And I think the best people in your life give you that in your community. And so it's a delicate balance, but I do think that there are you know, ways that we can, we can give that. But yeah, I mean, Asha is that representative of kind of an ideal and, you know, she's broken herself. (laughs) You know, none of us have, we don't have all the answers. Nobody does. But I do think that she kind of, you know, is just that, that an, an advocate in a way that the person, you know, the idea of do no harm, you know, kind of don't further harm, no matter what your particular uh, beliefs or ideas or, you know, and in, in, in some cases, like I said, that moment of, you know, keep your I told you so <laughs> keep that to yourself. Let 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 people have their moment, you know. So yeah, that's the role. But I, I think things begin at home. I'm I'm a big fan of strong families, and when that is absent, of course, the community has to fill in. But you know, communication is key. Once again, I'm I'm looking out into the world and seeing people become more estranged and alienated from each other on a on a device or a phone in the store in the you know I, I think we need to get a grip on that um, mm-hmm. and kind of as a society as a whole we need to you know kind of draw some lines and stop things before you know we're all you know too disconnected obviously I'm a verbal person <laughs> um, and so that the communication and I believe the art the arts and creativity I think promoting those kinds of things which is in you know Autumn's eventual story you know she kind of goes somewhere where they're carving pumpkins <laughs> and it's like you know express yourself you know we all have some sort of gift we all have some sort of talent and proclivity that we were born with and whether that's doesn't have to be your your career you don't have to go uh with it like that but we all have something and so yeah I I think a lot more creativity and a lot more you know fun and laughter but number one less hiding you know less hiding you know let people know how you feel and you I think will eventually find those who who are willing to to listen. And I, I can't really think of, um, I guess I could have thrown a foil to Asha in there, but that's not really a place I wanted to live, you know, kind of the person, you know, curating a world of convenience, essentially, you know, so I, I never came up with that character. And I, and I really appreciate how with the community that the overall tone of the book, again, not giving spoilers, is very hopeful in that 
you know, I feel like sometimes when we talk about women who struggle with mental illness of certain kinds, it's not a very hopeful book. Um, and I think we need that balance of realities and difficulties, which this book is very challenging um, for Autumn and, and what she's realized. And it's not like everything is tied up in a perfect little bow, but it's still, it's very hopeful. And a lot of that has to do with the community around her as well. So it was really beautiful in that way. Thank you. And, and you know, it, it was for me like a, I had gone back to New York City. I was in Harlem much more uh, after I left, which is where I lived when I lived there. And, and it, it, I really, it was a love letter to that neighborhood. I, I was very well taken care of there. I, the people were, were just, you know, recognized an out of towner. <laughs> you know, I made best friends there on top of best friends. Uh, still have great friends there in community. Whenever I'm in New York, I have to be there. And so that is really is kind of a, for me, representation of an, an old Harlem that is changing, but the parts of that neighborhood that are its core, I find are, are definitely still there, which is the community. Yeah, it, it's I, it's a place that I have felt very, very strong community, despite this image of New York as being, you know, hard-edged and cruel and estranged. It just was not my, my experience at all in Harlem. Well, I'm sure we could keep talking to you about this book and Autumn and her story uh, for many, many, many more hours. But before we let you go, uh, we wanted to ask you a couple uh, closer questions. So the first one that we always like to ask the authors that we have on the podcast is what books by women authors would you recommend? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Looking. Okay. Let me just turn over <laughs> here, right? Um <laughs> to the stack. One of uh, my college friends has written a book called Reekiness that it's hard to categorize because um, it, it's essentially about Puerto Rican identity and impacts of, of colonialism over time. And But her name is Sandra Ruiz. And what I'm finding in it is a beautiful lesson about, you know, identity from maybe later dark people who came to America and, and haven't necessarily had the time um, here that African-Americans have. Um, so there's there's that. Um, I'm still snaking through Becoming by Michelle Obama on the treadmill, you know, like a couple pages here in order to not just because she is, uh, who she is or the first lady was the first lady, but it's one of the most incredible portraits of community and how the community and family shaped a person to kind of carry the, that community and family forward that I've ever read. I'm almost at the end of that. Yeah. I mean, God, I have like 50 books here. It's an incredible book called the yellow house by a woman named Sarah Broom, um, whom I met, in D.C. on a fiercely female panel at the American Library Association. And, and this is uh, one of the most incredible, I mean, I'm reading a mix of Joan Didion and James Baldwin in this woman's 
documentation of she calls it an autobiography of a house and her her writing is just as i said it, it it's like i'm reading joan didion and baldwin and tony morrison and and we're just talking about a neighborhood a community a house over time impacted by hurricane katrina much later and i'm actually reading the book again because i had read it really quickly when i first got it and i want to uh, read it again so yeah, those are the ones that are are sitting right here. Well, there's so many, but in terms of the ones I'm continually reaching for, and and I'm just getting around to Brother I'm Dying by uh, Edwidge Nanticat, which I had not. Um, even though I'm a huge fan, I just hadn't gotten to that one yet. And even though she has a new one out now, I'm gonna finish this one first. Those definitely sound amazing and we will definitely be adding a lot of those to our lists as well Uh, we were talking a little bit earlier too about or you were talking a little bit earlier too about how some of the projects that you have coming up so what are some of the projects you're working on that you would like to share with our listeners well, yeah, I, I might do a sequel to this novel, <laughs> which I've never done a sequel before. My first awesome. book, yeah, my first book was just kind of came out a while ago, and to this day, everybody's like, "Are you going to write another one? Are you going to write it?" And I, I didn't, I never understood that. I'm like, no, that story's done. Like it was, it was what it was. I turned it in. It's over. I still feel that way about that, but this one, I, I feel like there's more I could do with her. And a lot of that is because I deliberately engineered her to be an older grown adult woman uh, because I had my first uh, two novels, three novels were about younger characters. And I just said, you know, now I want I want the wisdom and the edge and the observations and the instincts of an adult for this one. And so it, it could just be the various stories that I'm looking out that I might want to tell or it could be this particular character, but I, I feel like it's the character that I want to do work with again. So yeah, that may happen. I'm actually have a play that I've, I've always put on the back burner that I think finally going to get, get somewhere with this thing. I keep getting so much encouragement news word that speaking of summer would be a great film. And so I want to definitely be a part of that process, and I'm working on the materials needed to launch that, which are, you know, entirely different from the book. And and certainly you can only have the book, but, you know, these days with all the tools that we have, you know, I want to get together the whole package that for that. Well, we will definitely be eagerly looking for your new work that comes out. But thank you so much, Kalisha, for coming on to the podcast and talking to us about Speaking of Summer. Thank you. Thank you so much. And yeah, I I look forward to it. I definitely will read the review and keep you guys updated on the new book, (laughs) if that should come. We'd like to thank Kalisha Buchanan for talking to us about her novel, Speaking of Summer, which is out now from Counterpoint. You can find Kalisha at her website, Kalisha.com. And of course, all of Kalisha's information will be linked in our show notes. We would also like to say a special thank you to our patrons whose support makes this podcast possible. You can find Reading Women at readingwomenpodcast.com and on Instagram and Twitter at The Reading Women. You can find Kendra at Katie Winchester and me at Autumn Privet. Thank you all so much for listening and we'll talk to you later.